Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and so it is, as always, time to talk briefly, at least, about science and skepticism. And so um, I always like to remind people that throughout the week, you can find me on the Facebook page, and that you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, so let's start tonight with a warning uh, from the FDA. Uh, When I see these, I like to just, you know, point them out because not everybody is subscribed to the FDA's warning. Facebook page the way that I am. Uh, And so this is actually a warning about avocados. And so a new report looking at about two years worth of research suggests that the peels of avocados uh, or skins can harbor both listeria and salmonella. And so if you don't wash them before cutting into them, that bacteria can actually be transferred to the edible flesh. That's actually true for a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables. So a lot of times with things like melons, for instance, there isn't bacteria inside of the melon itself. What happens is that it's on the outside and then people cut into the melon without having washed the exterior rind. And that's what ends up transferring these bacteria into the actual fruit. And so it's basically just a really good idea to wash everything. And in fact, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services advises people, quote, wash all produce thoroughly under running water before eating, cutting, or cooking. Now for avocados, they suggest scrubbing with a clean produce brush and drying with a clean cloth before cutting. I think you could probably do that for, um, you know, if you're eating an entire, say, uh, honeydew or cantaloupe or even probably a watermelon, also good to do that just to wipe it down really thoroughly before you start cutting it up. But of course, that shouldn't discourage you from eating any of these things, especially avocados. Avocados are a very healthy choice when eaten in moderation. They're full of good fats. And as far as I'm concerned, they're delicious. I have totally eaten avocado toast. I am not ashamed to admit that. Um, uh, Toast with uh, a bit of tamari. I'm not tamari. I'm sorry. A bit of um, sesame paste and... uh, the avocados is very, very good. And um, so yeah, okay, that's all for the uh, (laughs) alerts section of our show. So now we're going to move on. And we're going to talk about a bit about something that's been very important over the last year. So uh, obviously, we are coming into the brand new year. So uh, I should mention Happy New Year to you all. And so one of the big things this year has obviously been the movement to empower women to name and expose those who engage in sexual harassment and sexual assault. And so, of course, what we found in the last year uh, that many of us already knew, but a lot of us turned out to be very surprised about, is that this problem is rampant across all sorts of industries, institutions, and basically is found in all corners of the country, even in those that we consider to be, you know, liberal and uh, 
above that sort of thing. And so, of course, scientists are not exempt. In June, a report was issued by the National Academy of Sciences called Sexual Harassment of Women, Climate, Culture, and Consequences in Academic Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And so since then, the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, or the NASEM, has been working on ways in which they can change the bylaws of their respective academies in order to actually have the ability to strip membership from a member who has been found to have engaged in sexual harassment and or assault. And so currently, membership is a lifelong benefit that is bestowed by current members, and there are no provisions for ejecting members. Um, And so, of course, this is a problem when we are trying to be better about holding people accountable to their, uh, holding them accountable to their actions. And so if you can't strip someone of their membership because there's no way to do that and they've been accused of some sort of egregious crime or have had a just a string of things like sexual harassment, that's problematic. Um, it's also problematic for other reasons. I think that they, um, it was hard to tell, but I feel like it implied that there was no reason by which someone could be stripped of their membership. And I think that for things like uh, the fact that in their elderly years, some of them have turned to things like race realism, uh, that would also be a good idea. But Let's, let's stick with uh, <laughs> uh, this for now. And so what happened basically was that this there was a very, very uh, well-publicized and embarrassing uh, issue that came to a head last April. And so a longtime member and prominent cancer scientist, Inder Verma, was accused of having a long record of sexual harassment. And so when this was brought up and people sort of called for him to be expelled from the academy, they were told basically that there is no uh, provision for expelling someone from the academy. And thus, the president felt that she did not have the right to try to do anything about that. And so the NAS president, Marsha McNutt, has actually been trying to do something about this. She was interviewed recently by Science Insider on the progress that they've made. Now, of course, others have uh, said that they aren't doing enough, but I think that unfortunately, these are big, old organizations, and so they have to move slowly. And they have to, um, one of the big things that she will talk about is the idea that you have to build consensus because the whole point of these academies is that the rules and who gets in and things like that are all decided by the membership. And so you have to get buy-in or else it won't be useful. And so she notes that before the report, I was hearing things like, aren't things getting better for women? Aren't some of these problems in the past? Or yes, maybe there are still problems, but there aren't, but aren't these personnel problems or personal problems? We are a professional organization, so we should concentrate on professional matters. 
However, after the report, <laughs> quote, I have even had women who actually prided themselves on being fairly knowledgeable on women's issues who said to me, I was surprised by that data in the report and not in a good way. And so, of course, the report makes clear that this is not something in the past and that this is not a minor issue. This is a major issue and it's happening to a lot of people. And so since then, NASEM has been working on drafting first a code of contact conduct because, of course, if you don't have a code of conduct to point to that someone has violated, then you can't do anything either. So this is a two-step process. First, they have to develop a code of conduct, and then they have to work on drafting bylaws that would indicate what sort of circumstances would allow for the removal of a member and what the formal process for that would look like. And so McNutt notes that she's actually been visiting with regional meetings and gathering feedback on the proposed code of conduct. She told the interviewer that the response has actually been quite positive, the appetite for the membership to really do the right thing. I have just been so energized by it, especially when presented with evidence. And so, uh, you know, when pressed about what such a process would look like, she noted that... I'm hoping it will be something the members will agree to and think is and will think is fair. For example, it will have to have some kind of standards of evidence because I am sure the members will feel more comfortable about it if they feel there is no chance of it being politicized. There is concern that a small cabal could potentially distort the process for nefarious purposes if there are not the checks and balances in place. Now, of course, that kind of language can be considered loaded on both sides. Um, but, you know, it's still an important step in the right direction, considering the fact that at the moment, there is no recourse <laughs> whatsoever. Now, she actually notes that although one might be skeptical, skeptical looking at the demographics of these uh, academies. So for instance, of the 200, sorry, 2,352 members of the NAS, 83% of them are male with an average age of 72. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily strike me as the most open to changes, especially about the idea of sexual harassment and the treatment of women. But she seems to think that uh, they are going to be on board. She says she was encouraged by her interaction so far and hopes that they'll be able to present a definite way forward by late April of 2019 when they have the annual NASEM meeting. And I think it's so important to talk about these sorts of things and to realize that even scientists are prone to confirmation bias, blind spots, all of the other cognitive tricks that prevent us from truly seeing the harm others can do if we think of them as good guys or leaders in a particular field. And so that's been a real problem um, in a lot of uh, fields right now is that people don't want to believe that these people that they thought were really excellent researchers and good people, that they could do these sorts of things. And it's really hard for people. But it's important to remember that even the most virtuous of heroes still have some sort of flaws. 
And many heroes actually have pretty huge flaws. Um, And I think that this is something that I have certainly seen in a lot of the circles that I am interested in. So in science, in atheism, in science boosterism, uh, you know, there's been a lot of issue with people mostly men, who have been accused of some pretty serious wrongdoing, some of them who are just terrible at uh, speaking extemporaneously about pretty much anything. Um, I, Someone really, really, really needs to take Twitter away from Richard Dawkins. <laughs> but that's a separate thing, um, though I, I don't think that Dawkins is any particular feminist. Uh, he, he has said that his favorite feminist is a woman named Christina Hoff Summers, who is not a feminist. She is at best an quote-unquote egalitarian. Uh, I would actually argue that she's more of a men's rights activist. But, you know, she is definitely not a feminist, but he thinks she's keen. Anyways, <laughs> uh, that is totally getting off topic. So anyways, let's move on now and talk about something way less depressing, even though hopefully it will bring better things in the future. Let's talk about some really cool science discoveries, just straight up interesting things that we've learned recently about the world. And so researchers have finally cracked one of the enduring mysteries of DNA replication. While biologists have learned a ton about how cells work, how they divide, how DNA and RNA works, how proteins works, all of these things, there has always been one fundamental mystery. How does the cell and the DNA know when and how to divide? It's been quite a mystery, says molecular biologist David Gilbert from Florida State University. Replication seemed resilient to everything we tried to do to perturb it. We've described it in detail, shown it changes in different cell types, and that it is disrupted in disease. But until now, we couldn't find that final piece, the control elements or the DNA sequences that control it. And so researchers had tried to change the expression of regulatory proteins in cells without much success in changing how the cells divide. And so this suggested that the mechanism involved the DNA molecule acting upon itself rather than through protein mediators. Using CRISPR, Gilbert and colleagues snipped away at mouse chromosomes in order to determine which sequences were crucial for replication. Now, just in case you're not aware, though I feel like most people are right at this point, uh, CRISPR is a natural process that has been harnessed uh, by researchers. It was originally found in bacteria, which use CRISPR to identify the genes of viruses that have attempted to insert themselves into the bacteria's DNA. And so once the sequence from the virus is found, the CRISPR-related enzymes break up the sequence and thus eliminate the virus's DNA. And so basically, the mechanism has been compared to a pair of molecular scissors that has programming in order to cut out a particular sequence of DNA from a genome. We're actually going to talk about that process a little bit later in the next story of how the, the actual proteins work. But for now, let's stick with this one. 
So researchers have, again, harnessed this ability and can now create CRISPR sequences that look for a particular DNA sequence programmed by the researchers themselves. The team used this method to target structures within the DNA architecture of mouse embryonic stem cells, either moving sequences around or cutting them out completely. They first looked at binding sites for a protein called CCCTC binding factor, or CTCF. <laughs> um, and so since this protein helps regulate the process of transcription, they suspected it might be involved in how the DNA time their duplication properly. And so transcription is how uh, DNA replicate, how they um, are able to take the strand that is there. And then um, mostly they what they'll do is they'll make a, a copy that is the opposite and it goes into RNA and then the RNA creates a new DNA strand. Um, slightly complicated, but we're not going to talk about that again right now. Maybe uh, someday I will do a whole show on the idea of just how uh, DNA works and how crazy it is and amazing and how all these insanely cool things happen in our cells every day, all day. It's just crazy. Anyways, it turns out that changes to this region didn't actually affect the ability of the DNA to properly duplicate at the correct moment. And so that basically left them thinking, uh, what are we going to do now? Because DNA is very big. And if the uh, particular part of the DNA that you thought was probably the culprit turns out not to be, then you're kind of looking then for, uh, as they said, a needle in a haystack. But they decided to take a different approach. They took a step back and did a 3D analysis of the contact sites where the DNA was connecting to itself. So when the DNA connects to itself, they were able to see what was going on. It actually allowed them to kind of see behind the curtain in a way and to decipher which parts of the DNA molecule were actually doing the work. They were able to identify several key locations outside of the CTCF associated boundaries. When these locations were disturbed, the entire system of replication was thrown into chaos. Removing these elements shifted the segment's replication time from the very beginning to the very end of the process, says Gilbert. This was one of those moments where just one result knocks your socks off. And so not only is this important to our basic knowledge of science and biology, uh, because that is a huge issue that, you know, we want to know how these things work for the pure science experience of it. But understanding this mechanism may be able to uncover the process by which certain diseases emerge. If you duplicate at a different place and time, you might assemble a completely different structure, says Gilbert. So that is very cool to actually have been able to figure this out. And so um, the next story, another breakthrough for basic science is where we're going to talk about the other part of uh, the um, CRISPR process. 
And so researchers earlier this year discovered the proteins that convert the mechanical movement of the inner ear's hair cells into an electrical signal that the brain can then perceive as sound. The researchers have proved that transmembrane channel-like protein 1, or TMC1, thank goodness for um for the ability to truncate all of these, uh, you know, rather long strings of explanatory names, contributes to the composition of the pores of the mechanotransduction channels in the cell's membrane. Now, what that means basically is that when you hear sound, you are actually hearing the results of a complicated series of conversions that manifest as the experience of sound, um, basically by the time it reaches your brain. So when a sound wave enters the cochlea, protrusions called stereocilia, located on both outer hair cells, which amplify the signal, and inner hair cells, which convert the mechanical signals to electric ones, which are then sent to the brain to be interpreted as sound. And so that's basically what happens is that the initial sound waves hit the cochlea, then it is amplified and refined by the outer hair cells, and then the inner hair cells actually convert that shaking motion to electrical impulses, which are then sent to the brain, which then interprets those electrical impulses as the sound you actually hear. <laughs> um, so it's a pretty it's a pretty complicated system, and because the delicate environment of inner ear cells is difficult to reproduce outside of an actual ear, researchers have been stymied in attempts to figure out which proteins are used for this conversion. And so researchers had actually uh, previously reported on a candidate from flies in uh, back in 2000, but it turned out that that mechanism didn't actually uh, survive in mammals. So it can't possibly be what, you know, makes us able to hear in mammals. And so now Jeffrey Holt of Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital has built off of research published by his team in 2011 to show that TMC proteins may be the true answer. Holt's previous research showed that genes for TMC proteins were required for that mechanical transduction in mice. This, combined with earlier work from another team, which showed that mutations in these genes could cause deafness in humans, suggested strongly that TMC proteins were indeed the true source. And so to further investigate, the researchers created 17 different TMC1 genetic mutants, with each sequence changing the amino acids formerly present to cysteine. They then looked at the activity of the mice's ears with either a mutated or natural form of the protein. They used a drug that causes cysteine to form a, dull, a disulfide bridge, which could almost certainly change the shape of the T TMC1 proteins. And so in 11 of the 17 mutated proteins, the drug changed the amplitude of the current that was being recorded. 
this was really the smoking gun evidence because if you change the properties of currents flowing through a protein, it must be forming a channel, says Holt. That's what really led us to the conclusion that this TMC1 protein is indeed the channel, the holy grail we've been looking for for 40 years. Now, this isn't the end of the story. There are still mysteries to be discovered about how the ear is able to convert mechanical motion to electrical signals. TMC1, notes Holt, is just one piece. Indeed, it's the central piece of the puzzle, but there are other pieces that are required for converting sound into electrical signals, and we want to figure out how all those pieces of the puzzle fit together. So hopefully they will continue to work on this and find ways to use this understanding to create new solutions for those with hearing impairments. Okay, so I misremembered. Uh, That is not the story that talks about uh, the other side of CRISPR. This next one is. Sorry about that. Um, So we are definitely going to talk about the um, Cas9 and other proteins involved in CRISPR. Now, this is actually a pretty uh, fun little experiment that is, you know, it's not a huge breakthrough nonetheless in that has uh, particular uh, applications that are readily available to be seen, but I actually really like it. And I think that it's a very cool thing because they used uh, kind of a nice homage to uh, yesteryear in it, but let's just get into it. Um, (laughs) So for the first time ever, researchers have uploaded a GIF into a bacteria's DNA using CRISPR. Yes, GIF. I say GIF. It is graphic. the, the G stands for graphic, so that's a hard G. Um, fight me. <laughs> Anyways, while researchers have previously used DNA to encode items such as the complete text of War and Peace, the complete list of plants archived in the Svalbard seed vault, and even an OK Go music video, this is the first time that researchers have created any sort of archive in a living cell. And so the researchers encoded a GIF of the premier image of the motion picture age, which is a pixelated GIF of Edward Mybridge's Human and Animal Locomotion. And so this was one of the very first uh, kind of films that was ever taken with uh, motion picture cameras, uh, Edward Mybridge's human and animal locomotion. Um, you've almost, I'm almost positive you've seen it at some point. Uh, and so this bit is showing a jockey riding a horse. And what they did was they created a pixelated GIF of it. Now, by sequencing the bacterial genome after several generations of growth, the researchers were able to get back that GIF information with up to 90% accuracy. Now, again, the study is meant to showcase what can be done with CRISPR and how it can be used to coax cells into recording data. And so that is really what they were looking at. The the E. coli is just a proof of concept to show what cool things you can do with this CRISPR system, says Jeff Nivala, a co-author of the paper and a geneticist at Harvard. (laughs) 
Our real goal is to enable cells to gather information about themselves and to store it in their genome for all of us to look at later. Now, this idea is referred to as molecular ticker tape, and it was actually conceived by George Church at Harvard and has been taken up by Navala, who was a postdoc in Church's lab. And so what they've done is uh, they plan to use the other part of CRISPR, which is the Cas9, um, as well as the Cas1 and Cas2 proteins, which are what do the actual business of finding the DNA to remove and actually removing it. And so Cas1 and 2 are actually responsible for finding a copy of the initial offending DNA and delivering it to the Cas9 protein so that an RNA template can be made, which allows the Cas9 protein to then know which sequence to remove. So basically, the Cas1 and 2 proteins go out, find that in, in a bacteria, they would find that virus sequence, they would snip out um, or copy it. I'm not sure which one, I would have to check that. Um, but somehow they record that sequence, and then they actually bring it to the Cas9 protein and feed it to the Cas9 protein so that it can then create an RNA template, which allows it to then go around and look in the genome for that sequence and where it finds it to then snip it out of the DNA sequence. I know it's kind of hard to visualize, and there's a little bit of sort of uh, anthropomorphizing going on there that's not really uh, meant as, uh, you know, to be anthropomorphizing anthropomorphizing, but um, it is a really interesting and amazing sort of molecular machine going on there. And so uh, the truly cool thing is that Cas1 and 2 add DNA in the order in which it arrives. Thus, they create a kind of temporal record of the different viruses or DNA sequences that they have encountered. And so basically, the researchers compared it to a sort of molecular ice core. And the team hopes that one day they'll be able to use this info to trace the development of brain cells as they develop into neurons. They could then use it to record a record of synaptic activity, showing which synapses were communicating at what time in response to what stimuli. Now, again, on the front of sort of DNA storage of information, this is probably not going to be of real use. The real work there is being done via the static strains of DNA. And so Karen Strauss, lead researcher for Microsoft's DNA storage project, notes that, as for DNA data storage in the IT industry, it is more well served by standard DNA synthesis and sequencing at the moment because they are easier to control and a lot denser than whole cells. Now, that team has set a record of storing 200 megabytes so far and is hoping to have a working storage system by the end of the decade. Unfortunately, costs will have to come down by a factor of around 10,000 uh, before DNA storage can truly compete with current technologies. But there is a real reason to pursue it. Properly stored, DNA information can be kept intact for at least 100 thousand years. Now consider all of those old uh, college papers and, uh, you know, pictures you never got around to printing stored on floppy or hard disks or, you know, uh, on 
any kind of obsolete uh, technology nowadays that is basically forever inaccessible. Um, it would be great if we could have something that we would know that we could keep and would be able to get that information out of for a very long time. Uh, and so that is kind of the goal there. All right. So it is that time when we should take a break and do some PSAs. And we're going to come back and I'm going to talk about something that's kind of a nerdy issue, but is really, really exciting for um, potentially exciting, I should say, because they haven't won yet, but uh, potentially exciting for access to scientific knowledge. So hang on for that. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. <laughs> oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! <laughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <laughs> Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure. Humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. 
It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Drumming Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Okay, we are back. And again, this might seem a little esoteric to some, uh, but it's very exciting to me. <laughs> uh, it's it's part of the whole uh, sort of connection that I tenuously try and make often between uh, science and uh, economic theory. <laughs> so uh, the Max Planck Society, uh, which if you're a regular listener, you have heard mentioned time and time again, uh, m- very often one of the scientists involved in a story it has some affiliation with Max Planck. And uh, so it is basically a huge complex of German researchers and organizations amounting to some 14,000 scientists. And so it is actually announced that it will end its subscription with the scientific journal publisher Elsevier. And or Elsevier. Um, and so this means that after the 31st, researchers associated with the Max Planck Society will no longer be able to access journals such as The Lancet and Cell, uh, which are among the 2,500 or so journals published by Elsevier. And so they'll have to basically start going back to an old-fashioned way. They won't be able to just look it up online and have their university subscription kick in and be able to read it. Instead, they'll have to find a library that is still subscribed, request it through interlibrary loan, things like that. The system of scholarly publishing today is a relic of the print era, and we want to activate a real paradigm shift in order to finally utilize the opportunities of the digital age, says Gerard Meyer, director of the Max Planck Society's Fritz Haber Institute. Now, the move is in support of the German open access initiative called Project Deal, And so Meyer is actually among the members of the negotiating team, which suspended negotiations with the publisher back in July because the publisher refused to accept a contract in which German researchers would have free access to articles published by authors in other countries where they do not pay article processing fees. And so uh, MPS publishes about 1,500 articles per year in a self in Elsevier journals, according to the release. As both producers and consumers of the research articles circulated through their journals' platforms, we have the leverage to demand a system that meets the needs of our researchers, and by adopting these transformative agreements, we will be able to achieve our society's goal of publishing the vast majority of our researchers' articles 
open access in a manner of a few short years, says Ralph Schimmer, Deputy General Manager of the Max Planck Digital Library, in a statement. And so basically, German negotiators said that they had wanted to shift the payments from from those trying to access the articles to paying a processing fee as authors, which would then allow the articles to be open access. They say that only allowing German authors free access to other German authors' publications means that the publisher is getting paid twice for each time someone outside the country tries to access a German author's paper and vice versa. And so one of the other sort of uh, things that's happening here is also that there is pressure coming from funding sources. And so there are granting organizations that are basically saying, you need to be publishing in open access uh, publications, because otherwise, we're not going to give you money, because we don't want to be basically giving you money to then have to be published in this for-profit publication. And so here in America, Elsevier is also in trouble. It's having a tough negotiation with the University of California system, which is telling its academics that they should be bracing for not having access in the coming year, and to also refuse to review articles for Elsevier journals until negotiations are more favorable. And so basically, that's part of it is that, you know, these journal publishers, they're not doing a whole lot for the money they're, they're taking in. Uh, you know, they actually ask other, you know, colleagues of the people who have written those um, papers to actually review them and do all of that work. And that's unpaid. And so they're not actually giving any of that money back into the system. They are basically taking all of that money straight out of the academic system and not returning it. And that's one of the big arguments against this um, whole thing and why people are very upset about it. And so uh, the University of California has suggested that their authors move to prestigious open access journals that are already available. And so while Aselvier is attempting to negotiate by claiming that the majority of researchers publish for free on subscription currently, Again, it's really hard to argue from a place place of strength uh, because, for instance, we know that its current profit margin is around 37% or more than $3 billion in annual revenue. Meanwhile, library budgets are strained under the weight of increasing subscription prices, increasing need for various other things, and it's just, you know, it's getting to the breaking point. And so I am watching the story quite closely uh, because if a Selvier, and I know that I'm p- pronouncing that differently every time, um, it's E L S E V I E R. Because if they, one of the most prolific and powerful publishers, can be brought to heel, this will be a sea change for how academic work is published and how it is made accessible to people around the world. And so, again, you know, a lot of this is funded through, for instance, your tax dollars in, uh, you know, the U.S. And yet this... Uh, publisher is making this huge amount of money off of the work of people who have been funded by public funds often or have been 
um, funded by other places that are not seeing any return. It is going straight to the publisher. And so, yeah, though a pro tip for you, uh, if you ever want access to a particular author's paper and you can't access it for free, um, in the Valley, you're kind of lucky. Uh, if you have the ability to get there, there are a lot of university libraries around here and you can actually try accessing it from there. Um, you know, it's fairly easy in the Valley. Uh, the revolt is not complete yet. Uh, so many are still... Um, subscribed to these publications. But the other thing is that a lot of authors, a lot of scientists, if you write to them and ask them for a copy of the paper, they will literally just email it to you. Most of them are happy to do that. It's their work. They can do with it as they want. They can send it to you. And it's, you know, most of them are super excited that you're interested in their, you know, esoteric, weird field that, you know, they don't, they, they don't usually get people just writing them and being like, I'm fascinated by your story on, you know, uh, geometric forms in broccoli, you know, or whatever. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that is definitely always an option. And usually, nicely, if you can't get at the actual full text of an article, you can usually at least get the email of the authors and you can just write to them. Okay. So let's move on now. <laughs> now, I kind of had been going back and forth about whether or not to talk about this story. Um, because, you know, it's one of those stories about something that we generally don't talk about. But it keeps it kept popping up in like lists of most read um, and things like that, that are, you know, in these end of the year lists that are all out there on all of the uh, websites. So let's talk a bit about wombat poop. <laughs> Um, and so it turns out that these adorable badger-sized relatives of koalas actually have cube-shaped poop. And until now, researchers did not know why. It's really weird. Most feces are, you know, either circular or uh, um, columnar. And so, you know, it's not really... You don't usually see sort of corners in poop. Um, and these aren't sharp corners, but, you know, they're corners nonetheless. And so a team of researchers led by Patricia Yang of the Georgia Institute of Technology uh, has cracked the problem. And again, even though it's a bit weird to talk about it, it's actually potentially a really interesting result. And so what they did that they noted that by emptying the intestines and inflating it with a long balloon, we found that the local strain varies from 20% at the cube's corners to 75% at its edges. So basically, in other words, the intestinal wall is varied, and in some places it stretches more than others, and this creates the block shape as it presses down unevenly on the feces as they pass out through the anus. Now, what's crazy about this is that it's actually a new way of creating cubes. Um, oh, and I wanted to say that um, obviously this is from um, post-mortem animals, but the animals were actually... Um, they, they had been hit by cars. And so unfortunately, you know, um, they, n no animals were directly harmed. Uh, 
they had already been unfortunately harmed and they're just, you know, were taken in. Um, this is, you know, one of those nice things that you can do where you can actually do good research on an animal that has unfortunately um, been killed um, in an unfortunate circumstance. Um, but so I did want to mention that. Um, and so, again, this is a totally new way of creating cubes. We currently have only two methods to manufacture cubes. We mold it or we cut it. Now we have this third method, um, the researchers said in a statement. It would be a cool method to apply to the manufacturing process. How to make a cube with soft tissue instead of just molding it. And so it turns out that not only could it have potential uh, you know, applications in, uh, you know, actual manufacturing. Uh, there is a reason why it's that way for the actual wombats themselves. <laughs> so apparently, uh, wombats, while they're adorable, uh, and very, very cuddly, um, at least they look like they'd be very cuddly, they don't actually see or hear very well. So they actually use those stacks of poo kind of as placemakers, um, place markers, I should say, um, to, you know, kind of remember where important things are and to announce their presence um, in an area to other wombats. Um, so now you have a really weird factoid to share uh, if you're planning to attend a New Year's Eve party. <laughs> so yes. Okay. So I want to move on now and talk about a crazy but also kind of cool first. Um, American explorer Colin O'Brady has become the first person to cross Antarctica alone, having reached the Ross Ice Shelf on Wednesday the 26th. Now, this is actually personally exciting for me because it hits against one of the most vexing and confusing conspiracy theories out there. Uh, that being that the earth is actually flat rather than a globe. And so one of the arguments that many flat earthers make is that Antarctica is not a continent, but rather a giant ice wall around the edge of the flat disk of the earth. And they've long pointed to the fact that no one has ever traversed the continent as proof of this fact. Now, of course, Others have tried, with one explorer dying just short of making the goal, which of course makes their arguments all the much more that infuriating and um, upsetting. But now, with O'Brady having skied 932 miles across the continent in 54 days with only the supplies he carried with him on a sled, we can put this silliness to rest. Of course, I'm kidding about that last part. I am always surprised by the ability of conspiracy theorists to absorb new facts and to mutate those new facts in order to keep the conspiracy alive, despite the fact that these things directly contradict the predictions of that theory. So I'm sure that this will not deter flat earth uh, proponents, unfortunately, even though it really should. Now, O'Brady beat British explorer Lewis Rudd, uh, who was also attempting the feat. And so as of yesterday afternoon, Rudd was still around 50 miles short of the finish line. Now, 
This kind of endurance feat is interesting, uh, but it's definitely not for the faint of heart. Uh, O'Brady's initial supplies weighed 400 pounds, which he had to, again, drag behind him on a sled. Uh, It contained a tent, sleeping bag, camera, satellite phone, and 30 pounds of fuel for cooking. The balance of the weight was made up with 220 pounds of food to sustain him for more than two months as he crossed the the inhospitable desert expanse. Now, again, Antarctica is actually uh, technically a desert. Because of the energy required for such extreme trekking, his daily intake of food was actually up to 7,000 calories, which is why there was so much of it. Um, And so that included oatmeal, specially designed protein bars, uh, apparently by his sponsor, um, and freeze-dried dinners. O'Brady wrote that, While the last 32 hours were some of the most challenging hours of my life, they have quite honestly been some of the best moments I have ever experienced. I was locked in a deep flow state the entire time, equally focused on the end goal while allowing my mind to recount the profound lessons of this journey. So, cool. (laughs) That is something I would never do in a million years. But, you know, somebody should, especially since it's good to now have someone to point to and be like, nope, once again, earth is not flat. All right. So let us quickly take another minute and talk about our last story, which is another amazing find. And so this time it's an amazing collection of dinosaur trackways in England. And so dozens of well-preserved footprints from at least 100 million years ago from at least seven different species have recently been uncovered due to coastal erosion for the last four years along the cliffs near Hastings in East Sussex. Now, the prints range in size from just over a half inch to over 23 and a half inches across and are exceptionally well-preserved. There are imprints of skin, scales, and claws visible. I mean, they're just amazing. Um, And so more than 85 tracks hailing from the lower Cretaceous period have been uncovered. The find has been described by Anthony Shalito and Dr. Neil Davies of the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Whole body fossils of dinosaurs are incredibly rare. A collection of footprints like this helps you fill in some of the gaps and infer things about which dinosaurs were living in the same place at the same time, Mr. Shalito told the BBC. The researchers believed that the area would have been near water, um, and it actually contains not only these ancient uh, footprints and trackways from dinosaurs, uh, such as Iguanodontians and Ankylosauruses, uh, but also the fossilized remains of plants and invertebrates. Now, it's actually really cool because this is in a part of the Wielden group, uh, which is basically a uh, large rock formation that kind of spans this area. And it's actually been 
being explored for over 200 years. And so this is where some of those first fossils uh, in Britain were actually found. And so, um, for instance, the first examples of Iguanodon and Ankylosaurus fossils were actually described uh, from these beds, um, for instance, by Gideon Mantell in the early 1800s. And so, again, this is just a remarkable find in an area that has already yielded many remarkable finds. But that now wraps up all the time I have. So please do stay tuned for civil politics. They will probably be talking about the government shutdown, which uh, has shut down things like the EPA. Uh, So yeah, fun times. All right, uh, that is all for me for tonight. And uh, again, please do stay tuned for uh, civil politics. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.